Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Ground Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. I want to tell you guys a story about a political asylum seeker from Afghanistan who left during the Soviet invasion and then assimilated into Virginia. She then made her way to Hollywood 20 years later, having never even owned a piece of luggage, and somehow made it onto television post 9-11 and has never played a terrorist or a refugee. That person is me. Azita Ghanizada is an Afghan-American actress, activist, and advocate for Middle Eastern and North African, or MENA, artists. She's also my friend. As a young girl, her family fled from Afghanistan to the United States. She grew up in the U.S. facing cultural stigma and discrimination that followed her into her adulthood. But she still pursued acting after college. And despite the roadblocks she faced due to her ethnicity and, of course, cultural backlash after 9-11, She went on to have a very successful career. When she couldn't stand the racism and constant stereotypes, she went out and started her own advocacy group, the MENA Arts Advocacy Coalition, and she then began to advocate for marginalized artists. She pushes accurate representation of film and television. She makes sure that it's important for those who are not represented to be heard. Azita has become the force of change And I can't wait for you all to hear her story right here on The Brown Print. So, Azita, can you tell me, uh, first and foremost, do you remember when we met? Yeah. I mean, it's all part of my journey story, how we met. We were both, were you an assistant too? Yeah, I was an AP. I was an AP, but same thing. You were an AP. You were an associate producer, right? I was a talent assistant and you were an associate producer at E Networks. And this was like, were you like, it was so long ago. Like they were just in that new building and E was not E back then. It was like, people called it E University. Do you remember that? Yes. They called it E University because it felt like everyone came out of uh, school and went there and worked for two years and then kind of moved on to another job. And we were all these kind of young kids learning about the business and yeah, I mean, we just kind of ran, ran E, uh, ran around E <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, for a little while. And it was really cool because I'd never, I didn't know anything about Los Angeles. I don't know about you, but like, I didn't know anything about the entertainment business except what I saw on television. And I really learned so much by actually working full time for two years, as opposed to jumping into any kind of creative career for myself. And guys, I, I will do it chronologically, but I have to tell you for those listening, this is my impression of her. Azita walks in. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's stunning. Who is that woman? And then the next thing I know, you leave, and then I see you on Entourage. I'm like, Azita, is that is that you? You were. Ju- 
We were just working at E together. What happened? How'd this happen? It was so wonderful. It was wonderful because, you know, growing up in LA, everyone has these dreams or people move here and they want they have these dreams. And when I saw you, I was so excited because it was so well-deserved, but there was so much more to you. And I wasn't able to ever peel back those layers and see who you were. And I'm so grateful that we were able to connect and I was able to see that you were so much more than what people see on the outside. So tell me your story from the beginning um, and how you ultimately ended up at the place we just spoke of. And that was at E-Entertainment. <laughs> at E-Entertainment. Isn't that so funny? Um, yeah, God, I loved working at E. I still stay in touch with all of my bosses from there. They like sent clippings about like the work I'm doing when I'm in the trades. Yeah. They're so supportive. It was nice to have that community. You know, I, I, how do you get from being a political asylum seeker from Afghanistan, you know, showing up as a little kid into Washington, D.C., and then helping your, you know, going to the airport with your family to get your relatives out of refugee camps, picking them up and everybody kind of bawling and arriving in safety um, to America. That was my childhood. My childhood was learning about war and learning about displacement and learning that I was a very different person in a community that didn't quite know what to do about me and where I was from. Um, and so kind of having this intense childhood and growing up in a very, very, at the time, uh, all white Virginia. And there we were, brown, moving into the neighborhood. And people were like, who are these people? Um, we were not received with open arms. People were not dropping off casserole dishes and saying, welcome to the neighborhood. They were throwing rocks at us and saying, go back to your country. So I kind of had this intense introduction into life. Yeah. Um, there was no, you know, um, learning how to ride a bicycle and watching cartoons. It was watching the world news and hearing people cry and learning about death and destruction really early. I somehow found solace in television. I loved watching TV with my mom. I loved watching Dynasty and Dallas. I loved how glamorous everybody was. And I had all of the five channels. Remember, yeah. all, all five ABC, of them. CBS, and, and what was it? Uh, NBC. NBC and UPN. Uh -huh. It was the UPN, remember? Yeah. It was Channel 20. It was something else, and, too. And, and, I it might have been four channels, but okay. it was four or five. I got it. And they played reruns. <laughs> they played the 70s reruns. Mm -hmm. And... And I loved TV. It was also the time at my home when my family didn't really fight or to discuss <laughs> war. And so I kind of liked escaping into television. And for whatever reason, I was always looking for myself in TV and I never found myself in television. I connected to the Cosby show um, because I felt like they handled matters or discussed matters that I kind of connected to a little bit. I loved Blazing Saddles when I was little because it showed on reruns on the UPN and I could laugh at the racism that was talked about. Like I was like, oh, okay, there, this is, I felt connected to these brown stories. I didn't feel connected to the other stories and I couldn't see myself on TV either. And from about the age of 11 on, I started to give my Emmy speech and I was like, I'm going to become an actress. I'm going to, I am going to go out there and I'm going to show up to Hollywood. Now I, I'd never been on a plane, uh -huh. but you were going to do like, it by the time I was going to do it. I was determined. And so I went to university and 
I kind of lost my will to do it. Um, I studied journalism and I thought I would become a journalist, a broadcast journalist or, you know, work in politics. This just in, you are in so many ways, right? You don't necessarily need the title, but you do speak the truth. You know what I mean? Truth to power. But go on. I apologize. (laughs) No. And, um, you know, I studied journalism. I really thought I would follow that path because there was there uncovering stories about people from my part of the world was very important and having it through my lens as opposed to this kind of watered down lens or this skewed lens was important for me. But I bought a one way ticket when I graduated university to L.A. And I'd only been on a plane once before. I didn't even own luggage. I took my mom's broken suitcase from Kabul. It was that big 70s maroon suitcase and it was missing a wheel. And I had $1,500 in the bank. And I showed up to Los Angeles and me and my one eyebrow, (laughs) we were like, we are here to act. (laughs) (laughs) And there was no acting. Like I was not going to start acting because not only was I coming into a place. And I love the, the, the name of the podcast because it's not your blueprint. It's our brown print. There was no brown print for me. There was no lane for me. There was no example, no mentor, no person that I could look up to and say, I'm going to do what they did because they made it with their name. They made it with a Ganizada like name. So I'm going to be like them. I'm going to follow what they did. And so I really didn't have anyone to look, look towards. Um, and that was one of the things. But the other thing was, is I grew up in a strict culture that didn't think that women in the arts was a respectable uh, profession. So I had to forsake both my cultural identity <laughs> and I had to try to make it somehow into a business that did not understand me at all. What do you mean you had to um, forsake your cultural identity? So at the time, and again, this is like the early 2000s, late night, like 99, 2000, 2001, to try to become an actress as a girl that comes from Afghanistan, as a, as a woman that comes from a Muslim background, was something that would create shame and harm um, to my family's reputation. They would think that what I was doing was loose and sexually provocative and inappropriate. And so not only did I take a lot of verbal abuse from people in the community telling me that I was a whore and that if this is what I was going to do, that, you know, nobody was going to respect me and to shut up and stop saying that I'm Afghan um, was a very common thing that came up when I became successful. And that was, that was a big thing that I dealt with internally in my family was you're smart. You can do these other things. Why would you sell yourself that way? And that's basically what it, it felt like to the community back then, that if you were an actress, you were selling yourself in some way or the other. Um, and so kind of turning my back on what my family thought was right for me was something that I had to do. And I had to be able to stand on my own two feet. I had to be able to provide for myself. I had to be able to use my brain and show them and prove to them that this business is not about selling yourself. Mm. This business is about creating something and creating a legacy and creating a future for other people to step into what it was that I did. And that ended up kind of coming full circle, which is beautiful. But at the time, it was incredibly difficult. Um, You forget how hard it is because you're away from it for so long. But when you get reapproached with that kind of um, 
misogyny, I want to say, and even it's ingrained misogyny in some of the women, you know, this, you're a whore because you're selling yourself mm-hmm. kind of mentality, or you're a woman, you, you're, it's dangerous for you out there. And that was something that was really difficult. So, so showing up to Los Angeles, you know, I luckily found the job at E to kind of get my feet settled and figure out what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing and I was scared. And so I had to study and I had to learn and I needed mentors around me, like the people that worked at E. How did you get the job though? That's interesting because when I hear these stories, by the way, and I just, now with your Emmy speech and your Oscar speech, I see it in the future. When, when we have this speech and you're like, I came to LA with $1,500 in my pocket and my mom's maroon suitcase, I have one, one missing wheel. Like those are the stories you hear about that you like, that's not true. Like, is that true? And now look at you. How do you get in that community and then get in the door at E in whatever way you could possibly do it? You know, I, I got a job there in a, a temp agency. Oh. I signed up with a temp agency and I worked as an assistant there and they were like, we love you. So whomever I worked for in the talent department, they loved my exuberance and my joy and my passion for the business. I loved television and film. I loved actors and I loved acting, but I also had a tremendous amount of respect for the people that I was around. I wanted to learn from them and I was eager to um, show up on time and do all the work that was required of me and do extra work that wasn't asked of me even to show that I was somebody that was willing to learn and absorb. And I was such a sponge, you know, I was 21. So at that time I was just like, teach me, teach me, teach me. And I ended up assisting, I think five or six different people. And I worked so hard and they all knew what my dream was that they let me um, leave early on Tuesdays and Thursdays to go to acting Mm. class. And it was actually them that were like, you have to quit. If you're really going to pursue this, like you're 23 now, you can't be here anymore. And the COO of E at the time called me into his office and offered to double my salary and make me an executive if I would stay. Mm. And he was like, we'll put you on TV. We will put you on TV. You like, you're so bright. Like we want you to stay. How can we help you? And I was like, at the time you couldn't do both. You couldn't be on E! News and also be an actress. You know, I think Olivia Munn kind of shifted that narrative a bit. Um, There wasn't really, you weren't really crossing those, those genres weren't really happening. People saw you as a soap actor. They saw you as a film actor. They saw you as a TV actor. You know, they just, people were so narrow-minded because there wasn't such a a multitude of different platforms that people could dance on. Now you have to kind of dance on all of them to stay relevant. Absolutely. Who are you telling? (laughs) (laughs) Juggle, juggle, juggle. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, go on. (laughs) Um, But so, so that was it. I started studying and Carrie, I don't know, honey, if it was just my naivety or my brightness or the one eyebrow. I have no idea. I was still waiting on my Hollywood makeover. Mm. It came later, Mm. but I would just show up and I'd be like, I, you know, I ended up getting an agent through someone at E helped me get like an agent. And I went in there and I impressed them. And within like a year, I booked like three commercials and I was auditioning for princesses and Disney films. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I did not know what I was doing. I was so green And they just, you know, casting directors, it was casting directors that would meet me through these auditions that were like, there's this girl special. And and honestly, what I think it was, was my rawness. I think it was the the life that I had lived, I was able to bring into rooms and I was able to, you know, you go to a conservatory and you learn about pain and you learn about loss and you learn about heartbreak. 
I had lived that that generational <laughs> trauma was in my DNA. I didn't have to look or work hard to find a way to connect to the kind of storylines that we see on TV, which is, you know, pain or loss or fear, any of those things. And so luckily I, I had something going. You said people thought you were special. I, I'm going to go just with the sheer visuals. You're stunning. And that's actually a lesson, not leaning into the, the actual the superficial or the aesthetic, because I've always been taught, my mom always says like, you'll, beauty comes and goes, but your intelligence, your, who you are, your character lasts forever. So perhaps as you talk about that, I'm listening and I go, okay, I could see them thinking, wow, she is special. But that has a lot to do with what you were able to see at such a young age. You walk into a room with a different perspective. How do you believe how you grew up really separated you from others, many others, you know, most others in this world? Um, I think there was two things. I think when I was younger, I think there was a tenacity and a fight in me. Uh, I think that I knew that I had to work a hundred times harder um, to get out of the situation and the environment I was in. I knew that speaking up and speaking out was something that was integral in me. I wasn't willing to be shy from very important topics because I kind of became this authority walking around in, in rooms like, oh, you're from Afghanistan. What's that like? What do you think about the war? So who funded the <laughs> Al-Qaeda? <laughs> you know, I mean, these are conversations that I had to have in my early 20s. You know, I wasn't walking around talking about my hair or <laughs> the people were not asking me what lipstick I was wearing. They were asking me important questions right off the bat. Hmm. What did I think about this war? What did I think about the U.S.'s involvement and, you know, terrorism and all of these things where it was like, okay, well, let's have real conversations. And I never shied away from those things because I also saw it as my responsibility, even though it wasn't. I felt a responsibility to educate people. And that's kind of what happened. That's kind of how I ended up becoming an educator later in my life. You know, that was my next question. Now, I was going to be like, how did you, cause we went from what in my, my simple mind, y'all. So forgive me, my simple mind, I'm like, she pretty, she about to be a pretty actress. She's this, she's that, but she's so darn intelligent and she has so much to offer. How did you, how did you transition into this? Excuse me, I'm giving a Ted talk, you know, Azita person. And that is, <laughs> and that obviously you just said it. You said you, you became an authority. People were, were curious and you felt like you you had to speak up without shame and, and, and be very honest, which to me would, would have been difficult if you felt like people were viewing your culture, your heritage, your country as a, as a problematic place or someplace that's less than. Yes, that's exactly what it was. The pity that people felt for me was evident right yeah. away. Oh, God, <laughs> You're so lucky you came out of it. Oh my God, did the woman look like you? <laughs> oh my God. Oh God. Like, I mean, like, it was just like, you excuse sort of... me? So you, <laughs> yeah, yes, you have to have some sort of sense of self because there's all of this energy kind of geared towards you because of your cultural history. And it was, it, it wasn't about my physical thing. It's, it, I'll tell you a funny story, Carrie. I remember when I first was kind of like single in LA and I was going out with people and, you know, we'd like, I'd be like talking to them and we'd be out and they would just look at me and then they would cock their head sideways and they'd go, oh, 
you're smart. Yeah. Like it was so disappointing. <laughs> this conversation's over. I, I, that's not what I'm looking for. They were like, oh, so heavy. You're being it. so just, deep now. It's it's taking me down. I don't, yeah. I just wanted to have some yeah, drinks. Have some like, and I was like, oh. We'll talk about the world. Oh, I need to, I need to just dumb it down a bit. Um, <laughs> so I never, I didn't know. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I, I don't even know what it's like um, to not be this way. That's so, funny. Um, but, you know, it, it was funny. I worked so steadily as an actress, unbeknownst to why or how. I just started to make inroads in television. And, you know, I tested for the lead of the girl in the kite runner. I didn't get it. And there was a writer's strike. And I ended up just kind of getting through television and then getting to work with all these people that I dreamt of working with. Sam Shepard and David Strathairn and Mahershala Ali and, you know, Michael Shannon and Rachel Weisz. It just like kind of all these incredible things were happening. It was beautiful. Uh, and then something interesting happened uh, along the way. I never, ever have ever played Afghan. It doesn't happen. Mm. People do not think that I'm like, they're like, oh, no, they cast, you know, other people with accents because I don't have an accent. And, you know, I don't, you know, I don't look, I, I'm healthy looking. So they want to ascribe a certain, um, you know, characteristic and character traits to women from Afghanistan. When I get, got jobs, if it was more than just one episode or two episodes, they usually adjusted the role to be close to where I was from. It just kind of happened naturally. We would talk to the producers. It was very collaborative and everybody was like, well, that's really cool. We can work with your history and kind of add that into the character. So it kind of always became a part of it. It was just natural something because I was proud of where I was from. And I always kind of wanted to layer that into to that. And then diversity became really important. In about 2015, all of a sudden, people are like, "Oh snap!" You know what's so funny? We're getting called out. People who are more are considered marginalized or diverse or whatever word you want to call us. We always remember the moment when it was important to be us. You know, oh, oh now we're in style. Oh, we're in vogue. Oh, you need one. Okay. Yes. Oh, you need more than one. You need two. Oh, you, you know what I mean? Well, could, there could never be two together <laughs> ever. It's unheard of. Ever that was. What? I mean, two Asian leads. Two what? Forget it. It will never work. Um, Society will never, ever <laughs> like it. it. It could never, it could never go in TV. Never. But then you look at a show like Grey's Anatomy and look at how that show represented so many different people yeah. from the jump. And that's because Shonda was, a, she's an African-American, she's a black American yeah. creator. And so she wanted to cast her show as the way that she saw the mm-hmm. world around mm-hmm. her. What, surprising. And it was the most watched was the most watched TV show and is now going on to its 17th season. And audiences did not feel like, oh my gosh, there's too many different, there's an Asian person and and two black people. Like there's a doctor, a two do- black doctors. Like no one felt that people connected to the show. It was, it was change making in that. And she really started to do that because as we started to have, you know, black creators on television, we started to get more shows that had well rounded casts. And that's kind of what we needed. We needed people in a position of power to change the landscape. And it wasn't even a part of the conversation. Like it didn't, audiences weren't mad. Audiences only get mad when they're told that that's what someone's doing. When they're watching it, they don't know that that's what's going on. You know, films that have less than 20% minorities are the least performing films at the box office. It's audience engagement drops. 
It does not get people in the seats like 21 to 30% of marginalized communities. When you have a film that has up to 30% of people in there that are people of color, those films perform the best. Yes, they do well. And so audiences know that they're going to it. They just don't like to hear that. Like they don't want to be told there was that many people. Uh They don't want to be told. Very much like the the America we live in. Please don't tell me we're racist. Please don't tell me this country was built on racism. Please don't tell me we're unfair. We don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to deal with it because then it creates this internalized shame that they have to feel, this guilt. And the responses that we're seeing are people's guilt. They don't know how to navigate the shame instead of go, whoa, am I part of this problem? How do I make it better? Which is really all you need to do. But it's all this defensiveness. It's like being in a relationship, in an abusive relationship with somebody. It's like, you're like, hey, you know, you did that thing. And it's like, no, I didn't. It's gaslighting, yeah. defensiveness, uh-huh. and all these uh-huh. things. And you're like, I did it because you hey. made me, and you did this yes. because. I mean, I'm, are we having? Are I'm we not having responsible for that? That's because your parents. Uh, you oh, wait, are we having relationship therapy right now? Side note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always. My bad. Always. <laughs> right. Okay. So. Um. But yeah. So when diversity became important, I stopped working. Hmm. Why? I disappeared because I was not considered diverse. Hmm. Why not? Because I was considered Caucasian in hiring practices. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's the face you make. That's the face I make. How? I got a TV show and I was told in the pilot after kind of, you know, coming off of a show that I was on billboards everywhere. I thought, oh my gosh, it's my moment. I tested for all of these TV shows. I mean, I'd be on the seventh season of something by now. And they, I wasn't getting them. And a ca- casting director, two casting directors let me know that, hey, Azita, you're not hireable right now. The studios count you as white. And this is our diverse role. And so I was like, what do you mean I'm white? And they were like, you're white. I'm like, hold on. This whole time I've had to like defend myself for being brown. And now you're telling me I'm white? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and it turns out that there was no box for us in hiring when they checked the box, Mm. Asian, black, you know, whatever other in the white box, it says Caucasian, you know, include people from the middle East or whatever. And I was like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. So I wasn't ethnic enough to be, I wasn't diverse enough to be diverse and I wasn't white enough to be white. Just think about what you just said. And I want, I want our listeners to pay attention. And this was what year? 2015. So in 2015, you were considered- It was like 2014, 2014, 2014, 2015. 2014, 2015, when diversity became uh, important and and, and in vogue, uh, you then realized that there was no box for you to check because it did not exist because you were considered white because someone's status system said, these are the only boxes that we need. In 2014, excuse my, I mean, like, just imagine in 2014, there was no box for who you were. So they put you in some, you know, undetermined box because that made them comfortable. And no one thought that that was wrong. Except for you. Well, it was funny. I had worked so much because really I was just diverse and they, they weren't having to turn in these report cards. But once it was like, you know, the studies were coming out and these report cards were coming out and grading networks and TV shows on their diversity, I wasn't going to be a good grade for them Mm. and to whoever is measuring these things. 
And so when I was told that I was considered white, I ended up calling my union and SAG-AFTRA and they were like, uh, okay, you know, join the diversity committee. (laughs) And I was like, okay. Um, and I, I started sending emails and I started to reach out to people, other performers and asking them if this was happening to them. I mean, I did not work. Like I could not, I couldn't get a job. And uh, lo and behold, it took about a year of stalking people and more people hearing that more performers that had been working steadily being then told, Hey, you, you can't get this job because you're not diverse. The agents telling them. And so they were that now emailing me back saying, Hey, this happened to me too. And so I started to gather a couple voices and then really engaged with my union. And luckily we had, um, uh, the diversity head at the time, Adam Moore, and I started to get on the phone and he really, really engaged with me. And I kind of started this movement where I started to go to these diversity committees, learn how it worked within our union, learned what the contracts look like. You know, sag After wanted me to start a coalition, which I did, which was Mina Arts Advocacy Coalition. They wanted me to go and lobby all the studios and networks to try to get added to their MOUs, which is their modem of operanda, because the NAACP is on there and the, you know, um, National Latino and film is on there, like the AAPI is on there. So Asian communities, all of them are in there. I spoke to the Asian community. They're like, you know, we can maybe help you get into the Asian box. Yeah. That's, you're, you're not going to get, you know, we can, we can try to figure this out. Cause I was like, I, I, I'm, I'm stuck here. <clears throat> and there was a, uh, there was a pilot program at the U S census. So I did so much research. This is where the DC brain came in. There was a pilot program with the U.S. Census where a MENA category, Middle Eastern North African, was up for potential congressional approval for the 2020 census. And this was in 2015, 2016. So I learned about the MENA category and I spoke to even some of the professors and academics that were involved in creating the MENA category. And I tried to figure out what it was, what countries it included, and how it could benefit um, people, performers in Hollywood. And luckily, because we do have some real champions out there, SAG-AFTRA kind of really stood by my side and figuring out a way to help me get that because they were getting more calls from performers and they knew that this was a huge um, hole. This was like some sort of, we were completely invisible. And people were talking about Muslims, but they weren't talking about us as diaspora, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't check a Muslim box. Yeah, Being Muslim doesn't get you hired. Right. So unless they wanted me, unless they wanted to start wearing a headscarf and speaking purely in Farsi, then I was just not going to work anymore. I can't be a, you know, a non-religious person from that part of the world and be in the conversation. And I felt that that was also a weakness. And so labor, 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 some really unified voices from some other um, performers. I found a way to work with SAG-AFTRA and the AMTPT, which is the Producers Association, and created the MENA box in the 2017 um, TV theatrical contracts. So I built that box, girl. You build it. It's not there. You build it. You man, that's a lesson. (laughs) I love it. If it's not there, you build it. If it's not there, you build it. Mm. There's no lane for you. You make it. When people tell you to change your name, you go... Well, if they can learn to say Zellweger, they'll learn to say Ganizada. Easy. Got it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> you know, people love to denounce Daenerys Targaryen, but Azita Ganizada, they're like, Ganibabad? Yeah, you're Bababad? like, no, you can say it. Think, think harder. You can do it. <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. Azita, tell me about the box that you created and, and, and as a result, the, the result 
as a result, what you've been able to do as an actress and also as someone, like I say, an activist? Thank you. Um, you know, first, what happened was the Casting Society of America and I went, we we worked in the Middle Eastern, North African, South Asian, MENA and Manasa language into all of the breakdowns globally. Mm. So I started to just go and have these um, educational, like, meetings with the major players in the business that hire us. And then I went through to all the studios and networks and kind of sat with most of them and talked about the new category and how we were going to implement it. And it was, again, a lot of free labor. <laughs> um, and so we kind of took the language and we started to slowly build it into the Hollywood structure. Now, we didn't get the MENA category in 2020, which was a huge disappointment. But SAG-AFTRA and the producers stood by us in agreement that we needed to be ahead of what the census was doing. And we did need to include this entirely marginalized group of performers, because even though we're not, uh, you know, we're a 1% of television, how many films and TV shows do you see centered around storylines? Oh movies? my God. All, all, if not every other one, every drama, every streaming service, everything I'm watching. Yes. We are overly yeah. sat saturated on film and television, but we're just not the stars in it. And we can't even be hired in it unless we're willing to play a terrorist or play a scare hijabi woman. Uh. And so I was trying to shift that narrative and just create more balance. So that's kind of what's happened is that now that you have Mina in there and casting directors are like open to all ethnicities, including Latinx, Black, Asian, and Mina. And so casting directors are learning that language. And now even just this week, the Academy included Middle Eastern North African in their hiring guidelines. So even now, which is massive for us because if the Academy is using the Middle Eastern North African language and using it as one of the marginalized groups that needs to be uplifted in film, that means that it's the gold standard yes. in hiring. Yes. Because that means every top level producer, every top level director, studio executive is now going to go, okay, so yeah, Azita does count. So we can put her in this Oscar film. Yes. Um, yes. And so in that space, it just opened up this whole new world for us. And this just happened. And so it's massive that we're continuing to push and build this, like building this language out and creating more opportunities for us. USC Annenberg just put out a new study today. And out of the 3,981 speaking roles for women on television, 1.6% were people from the Middle East and North Africa. So that was three point eight of us, four, four, four of us. So congratulations to the oh, four of us. That is crazy. That is absolutely insane. The four of us. Insane. If you think about it, you talk about marginalized, forgotten, overlooked, forgotten, invisible, Do doesn't matter until they need a terrorist. That's what we were. And I was like, that is not good enough. That, that is not even right. Like you're not even considering us for anything that's that's meaningful until you need to use some sort of a bias against us. Is there an exception to the rule in Hollywood? Is there an actor or an actress who's really made it who would be in the MENA category? And you're like, see, that's that's the one. Um, you know, not yet. There's, you know, I'm really proud of Rami Malek, mm -hmm. who is um, a Syrian Egyptian. So he's Christian Egyptian. Um, and he, and this is a wonderful example that I give all the time, a Arab screenwriter, Sam Esmail, put Rami as the lead of his show as Elliot. I would have liked it more if his name was like Amir because I didn't need him to whitewash Elliot. I would love to have an Amir as the lead of, you know, Mr. Robot. Fine. I'll settle for Rami as Elliot, but it took an, it took an Arab 
you know, again, creator to cast his lead as an Egyptian Arab. And because he was seen in that and because his work was so beautiful and he won a Golden Globe for his work as Mr. Robot, he was then thrust into the spotlight and was able to play Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody. And that film was the highest grossing film in 2018. It did tentpole numbers. So that one Middle Eastern performer, Mina performer we had on screen in 2018 made the most money out of all of the films and won the Oscar that year. Mm. And so he's really kind of uh, changing the narrative too, because he's not playing terrorists. He's not leaning into that. Um, they're not hiring him for that. They're seeing him because he, Sam gave him the opportunity to play a hero. He didn't then get pushed into something different. So Rami's a really wonderful um, exception for women. You know, my friend Nazanin Boniati is uh, going to do Lord of the Rings, which is great, but I think she's done some, you know, some terrorist stuff. So it kind of still leans her into those terrorist narratives that, you know, we're hoping to get someone out of that terrorist narrative. It's like, look, it's okay if you have to do that. You know, we needed to have Boys in the Hood to thrust all those performers and John Singleton and all everybody, we needed to have that story out there in you know, in the mainstream. And that's wonderful because we needed those actors to become household names. And then that gave them that opportunity. Had those actors had to only play gangbangers for the rest of their lives mm -hmm. and not be able to be the heroes. Like if we did not get to have a Chadwick Boseman, mm -hmm. like, you know what I'm saying? Like you cannot just continue to cast you know, black people is gangbangers. But it's I will tell you that Chadwick Boseman, may he rest in peace. Him, him being cast as as a king, um, in in Black Panther was life changing for me, life changing for my friends, life changing for their children. We Denzel Washington said that he um, is in a relay race and he might be the third leg. And he said he's passing the baton to people like Chadwick Boseman who are taking it to places he'd never thought could be taken in terms of the roles that they would receive. A black king for Marvel is unheard of. And it speaks to what you said earlier, these creators in power who want to see it and who have the vision. Um, do you ultimately find that that's where the real change begins because you said if you don't see it you build it right if you don't if you don't have it you make it you create that lane for yourself but do we need more people who are marginalized to go for the positions of power i often tell my girls look i know y'all love being in front of the camera but the the real business is behind the scenes the real business 100%. is the ownership i love you guys my mentees i love you guys my brown girls that dream i love you please don't look at what i'm doing and thinking that's it because that's how I came up. There's so much more. That That's the advice I give all the young girls that, and, and really just young people from my part of the world that ask me, I'm like, become a writer, yeah. produce. You have to be in charge of the stories that you're putting out there. Now, it would definitely be something I would do if I wasn't trying to fight and continue to fight for representation, like fair and balanced representation and fair and balanced inclusion in the conversations. I'm still fighting for us to be included yeah. in the talk yeah. about diversity. Like, 
can can we have the MENA out of the other box? You know, USC Annenberg just put their thing out and they put us in the other box. And then Viola Davis tweets it like, this is why we're fighting for everybody, but we're not even in there. Yeah. And I'm like, this is why Native American and Middle Eastern North African people need to be seen outside of the other box because we need people like Viola speaking up for us. We need people fighting for us. And we need people like Ryan Coogler. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I thought about Ryan. What Coogler did was, was he brought Disney... He brought Marvel to Oscars. Yeah, you're welcome. And do you do you know why? <laughs> yeah. Because he had the 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 insight and the the belief of hiring, I think, black women of color mm-hmm. for his costumers mm-hmm. and for art direction, mm-hmm. right? So because he knew. So not only did he hire from within his community because he knew that they would layer a truthful, authentic texture to the story that audience want. The audience understand when it's a mishmash of cultures, they're like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. They're overwhelmed by it. They want authenticity. They see it. Even if they don't know that they're asking for it, they show us with their dollars. Mm-hmm. So because Kugler had the insight to hire women of color that he could trust, he ended up bringing Disney to Oscars for it. And that is power. Do you know what I mean? Because now those women, these Oscar winning women are in a position now to hire more women or other other people of color by, you know, black indigenous people of color to then, you know, take over for that, pass the baton on to. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm doing. I'm like, listen, like, I'm too, like, you know, I, when Aladdin came out, uh, Disney called me in and we were chatting and there, I was like, listen, guys, I know I'm like, I know I'm like Jasmine's auntie now. That's fine. Like, I'm just you be her fine ass auntie. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm too, like I've a- I've aged out of that stuff, but how do I get the people that are coming behind me to have some sort of a brown print? Have some sort of a a lane to go. Okay, well if she did it and if she stayed true to herself and if she stuck to her name, you know, if she didn't change her name, if she didn't anglo her name, if she didn't try to shift where she was from. If she didn't pretend she was Latina for 10 years, Mm. you know, like if she could do that, then maybe I can. So that's the whole thing is trying to get that baton. Like Denzel, there is no, there is no Chadwick Boseman without Denzel. And Chadwick knew that. And that's the thing that Denzel was doing. You know, that's the thing that is an accident that you do when you show up as yourself, Mm -hmm. when you show up as yourself and you demand to be taken seriously, you know, with warmth, with talent, with, with gravitas, you are opening the door for a hundred people that look like you behind you to step into that role as well. I want you not to take this lightly nor forget as I listen to you talk with so much passion and know that this is what you really have been put on this planet to do is to hold the door open for those who've been forgotten and invisible. You know, the conversation will come full circle and I'm like, Azita held the door open for me. I, I remember she did this. She created that box, which ultimately, while that, that in, insignificant square to you allowed me to see another world, to, to become another person, to tell different stories, um, you need to know that that is powerful in itself. Um, and the whole point of our podcast is talking about doing it a different way because the blueprint does not fit us. Quite frankly, it never has. It is um, a system that was not built for us to win. And as you talk about all the different ways in which you've been able to um, change the narrative or help change the narrative, I think of your TED Talk. Um, you gave a TED Talk on how you found your purpose from watching TV. And I, and I understand that you explain that to me now 
But when did you fully realize your importance um, in society and what you had to do? Well, I, I, I'll tell you how I understand what the purpose is. I didn't know. I didn't know that by not changing my name, I was standing in my purpose. I didn't know that by not turning my back on my culture was standing in my purpose. I didn't know, but there was a seed inside of me. There was a whisper that told me that this wasn't right, that I should be enough, that this should be okay. And if I wasn't going to make it this way, then I didn't want to make it. If I wasn't going to be good enough, if I had to shapeshift so much that I then erased myself, then it wasn't right for me. And by doing those little things, I ended up standing in my purpose for some reason and somehow. Mm -hmm. And it was later on in life when I started to kind of open these doors and go, I'm just so confused. Why is this? I realized that, like you said, like you are learning right now. People didn't know that we were invisible. Mm -hmm. People didn't know that we had been forgotten in the conversation, but no one felt empowered enough to bring it up to them. Mm -hmm. And so just by feeling empowered enough, by creating that empowerment as a young woman and continuing to carry it on throughout my life, continue to help me stand in my purpose, which is what I'm doing. And just by opening doors for other people, knowing that I have gotten people jobs, which I have gotten so many people jobs. Yeah. I have gotten young people jobs in production. I've gotten young you know, people jobs on TV shows. And many, the, the executives, the producers, they all know that I'm doing these things behind the scenes. These young people don't even necessarily know. I, I don't get paid for this. Okay. I make no money from this. And I spend 40% of my time doing this labor for free so that I can uplift others. They don't know that I'm doing it, but my heart is so full because it is my purpose. Mm -hmm. I came here to create a path. I knew I needed that path. I knew I needed to see myself on television. Now, whether that was going to be me or going to be the next young star that comes out of that, that then becomes the big exception to the rule, that's okay because that was my purpose. That was the whole reason why I showed up with the one eyebrow and the broken suitcase and said, <laughs> I'm coming. I didn't know at the time. Like I was like, I'm going to be on Dynasty, the reboot, you know? And I mean, and girl, I test my first TV show that I tested for. Let me tell you how I knew I was in my purpose. Showed up with nothing. Didn't even ha have any acting skills behind my underneath, like behind my belt. Loved Dynasty, loved Dallas. Never saw anyone that looked like that, like me on that. Yeah. Watched it with my mother yeah. obsessively. The first TV show that I ever tested for was for Aaron Spelling. <gasps> Really? Wow. He was in a wheelchair at the time and they, he wheel, they wheeled him in and I auditioned for Mr. Aaron Spelling, who was my guide to show up in Hollywood. He didn't know that and though. I knew in, because he you, didn't know you that. hadn't shared that story yet. No. No. Wow. And he passed. But I knew in that moment that like, keep going, Azita, because there are signs that are always delivered to us. You know, we just have to be willing to receive them. We have to be willing to receive the message and believe that that's our way forward through what's a very difficult and trying business. Zita, I have written down um, numbers. You are so powerful. But by the way, this is a normal conversation. 
um, when we go to lunch, when we go to dinner, I'm, this is how I am the whole time. Like just listening and thinking, what else do I need to know? Or, or even when it comes to politics, you are so learned and it's so appreciative and in terms of we need it and it's refreshing. Like it just is. Um, I'm not going to be like, you're smart. Um, before I let you go, tell me where people can find you in terms of what projects that you're working on on TV, past projects that are up on Hulu that I can watch those things? Um, So last year I was on Good Trouble. The second season I showed up and I was, I'm now playing the boss, which is the part I was meant to play. (laughs) I've aged into my gravitas. I'm like, listen, sit down. Like, I think I'm in my twenties until I work with 20 year olds. And then I'm like, oh, I get it. Okay. 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 You're cute. Go, 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 go on. Um, but um, yeah, I was in Ballers last year, uh, which was great. Um, and um, I have a few films that I just, hopefully we don't know when they're coming out. I have a small part in The Friend. Actually, it's called Our Friend with Jason Siegel mm-hmm. and Casey Affleck. And um, I have a film called We Broke Up with um, William Jackson Harper, who was just nominated for an Emmy, who was Chidi in The Gold Play- Good Place, and Aya Cash. So hopefully that will come out soon. And then I have Kilroy Was Here with uh, the director, Kevin Smith, which is a horror trilogy. We have that film coming out, hopefully. 21. So all of those films were supposed to come out this year, but because of the pandemic, alas, I sit and wait. Yeah, alas. For the uh, young girl who was invisible, you were too powerful and too mighty, my friend. Thank you so much for being on The Brown Friend. Thank you for having me. If there's anything that I took away from this conversation with Azita is that people we see in our favorite shows and perhaps influencers don't necessarily feel as if they're represented. It's imperative that all races, genders, ethnicities, and nationalities are represented properly and accurately in roles across our screens. Azita said a few things that I'd like to call gems and share them with you. If it's not there, build it. They didn't have a box for her, so she created it. Be a creator. Here's the message that she passes along to those coming up behind her. Make sure that you're in a position of power so you can tell an accurate story. And last but not least, inclusion is more than a stereotype. You don't necessarily need to play that role, whether it be a terrorist or a gangbanger or something that doesn't necessarily reflect the ideals of your culture. Azita Ganazadi is truly making her own brown pack. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Haha, <laughs> kidding, kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.